Under the historian's crafty influence, revolutions tend to occupy a glowing, almost magical space in our imaginations. They are moments when the whole world changes, or at least an entire civilization, and they fascinate as much as they terrify. What can we learn from these wild events, these frenzied mishmash moments of human action, violence, and progress? Jason Kuznicki joins me now to talk comparative revolutions. Welcome to Liberty Chronicles, a project of libertarianism.org. I'm Anthony Comegna. I think that right off the bat, some people in the Austrian tradition, uh, some certainly postmodernists, um, people who are methodological individualists and people who are not uh, but have other intellectual concerns at hand might bristle at the somewhat old idea of comparative history. By now, it's a somewhat old idea at least. Um, aren't all situations in history unique, sculpted by unique individuals that can always choose to do something different? So what, what is really the, the value or purpose of comparative history? So yes, all situations are unique. Individuals make choices. Individuals are the constitutive elements of all societies and they are the basis of a social science founded in methodological individualism. That's all true. But comparative history can still be valuable because there are despite the differences brought by individual actors, nonetheless some commonalities that are worth looking at. There are not exact parallels but there are near parallels in history and uh, the, the book The Anatomy of Revolution by Crane Britton which we're going to be discussing is a classic study of four revolutionary events in, in Western history that uh, certainly had parallels. They certainly had some significant similarities that appear to be more than just coincidence or just a, a sufficiently large number of people making the same choices. How, so what, what are the examples we're working with then? We have here the, the English Revolution, the American Revolution, the, the French, French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. That is to say the, the transition to, uh, to uh, communism. And uh, I know that a lot of people will be furious to hear the four of them put into the same category. I, I am aware of that and uh, guess what? There are reasons to do this. There are certainly there are certainly commonalities despite our necessarily very different evaluations of the end products of each of these revolutions. How do we know that when we look back in the past, we're not just imposing our own uh, view to to see commonalities. You know, we're imposing patterns on the past rather than sort of digging them out naturally. How do we avoid doing that? In a sense, we're always at risk of doing that. In a sense, we're always at risk of bringing to the historical data some framework and imposing it on the data, and then uh, determining that this must be what happened. And and the reason that this is always a risk is because. We can't run experiments in history that 
are designed to falsify our preconditions. So, so if, if, we have, if we have some pre-existing notion of, of how revolutions take place and we look at a revolution and we find it, well, we've confirmed it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that all revolutions are that way and it doesn't mean that it had to be that way. And it also, it also does not mean that simply because it looks this way to us that we have, have uh, seen it accurately. We might, be, we might be looking at data that we've sort of squashed or distorted in some way to fit into the mold and, and that's always a risk that, that historians run. So the historian's most important virtue is sort of an extreme humility. I would say so. Okay. Uh, I would say so. Not all historians would say that. Some, <laughs> some would say, look, I've got it all figured out. Mm -hmm. I've got the pattern that explains everything. What I like about Crane Britton in particular is his intellectual modesty. Yeah. He admits – he has this really great sort of theoretical preface where he admits that what he's doing is in some ways an exercise in metaphor. He says, I'm going to compare revolutions to a fever. And I know that this is a metaphor and this is fanciful and there are limits to it. There are limits to what a naturalistic metaphor, uh, you know, naturalistic process as metaphor can actually do for us. And he also admits that when you say that the English Civil War and the French Revolution were like one another, that again is an exercise in metaphor and we have to be very careful not just to identify similarities but also differences. It's the art and the arts and sciences, right? The, the craftsmanship involved here. Absolutely. It's absolutely the art and it's also – it also gets back to one of my sort of favorite uh, intellectual hobby horses which is lumpers versus splitters. You know, do, you, do you lump together the English Civil War and the French Revolution because of their similarities or do you split them apart because of their differences? Well, the correct answer there is it depends what you're trying to accomplish. If you want to point out that both of them had a sort of Thermidorian reaction at the end, that's a useful comparison. If you want to distinguish that Cromwell was a person of very different temperament from Robespierre, well, you know, you might want to do that. There's, you know, there's something useful there. Well, I, I'm not somebody who uh, sort of dogmatically thinks we should exclude methods that are slightly problematic or maybe even a lot problematic. So let's let's take the risk of doing comparative history here and dive into this idea of revolutions having a particular anatomy. Um, and I want to focus in first on the, that idea of a revolution. What exactly is a revolution in the way that Brenton is talking about? So. Brinton is trying to give us an account of this historical phenomenon that is emphatically not Marxist and also not, not reactionary. Uh, there is a tendency among those on the right to view all revolutions as presumptively bad and there is a tendency of those on the left to view all revolutions as sort of the stepping stones of human progress toward a more perfected society. And he's trying to, he's trying to sail a sort of middle path between them and, and not to take either of those two views. Instead, what he wants to do is look at what we can say based on empirical data without having this sort of built-in conceptual framework uh, that might uh, prejudge our, our – or you know, predispose our, our uh, thinking to one conclusion or another. 
Is this something is, – is a full revolution something that's unique to the modern world or the early modern world, modernity in general? Were there pre-modern revolutions? There were certainly pre-modern popular political actions, uh, no, no doubt about that. I think what is new in the modern era is uh, the ideological revolution, a revolution that takes place motivated by a set of causes that are simultaneously secular and political and held by a substantial segment of the society. So when Alexis de Tocqueville writes about the French Revolution, he writes that it was unusual because it had almost a religious character. And this is a very insightful observation, I think. Uh, the, the word we would use is it had an ideological character. The French Revolution had an ideology to it. When you look at it compared to the English Civil War, it's a lot harder to disentangle religion from the English Civil War because religion was... Uh, just constantly a part of the revolutionary's own program. Re religion certainly had an important part to play in the French Revolution as well and one that often gets underplayed. But there were a whole lot of secular ideological concerns in the French Revolution that you don't see so much of in the English Civil War. So I would say as, as modernity progresses, you got more and more people who are literate, who are absorbing ideas about politics and who would like perhaps to act on them. And that's uh, one of the factors in, in modern political revolutions. Are there any necessary preconditions that you know, society, the economy, the political system has to fulfill before a full revolution is possible? Well, uh, Britain certainly thought so. He thought that there were a number of, of preconditions that he could discern in all four of the revolutions he studied. One of them was that the society uh, was facing difficulties over government finance. People were complaining about taxes and yet the government did not have enough money. And these uh, questions of finance are – uh, precipitative causes of certainly the English Civil War, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Russian Revolution. All of them are uh, in some ways tied up with government finance. Another precondition that he claims to discern in all of them is the uh, sense that social mobility has been impaired in some way that is unacceptable to the people in the society. So when the uh, French bourgeoisie complains about their position in society and how they ought to be able to rise and they are denied that. This is something that very strongly alienates them from the, uh, the social order and inclines them to revolution. Uh, for a long time, the, uh, the bourgeoisie had hoped to rise and it was not an unusual or an unfounded hope. They hoped that they could buy their way into the nobility, which was the way that you typically became a nobleman in France. You bought a, uh, an office and it conferred on you a noble title and then you could think of yourself as being of a higher social station. Uh, this seems like a very you know, venal and corrupt process to us and of course you know, really it was. But this was the way that you did it. This was how you rose in society. Well, leading up to the revolution, there were a lot of people who wanted to do this and who did not have as many opportunities as their ancestors had had and uh, they were bothered by this and they, they felt that sting of, of 
wanting to rise and feeling they were entitled to rise and not being allowed to rise. Hmm. The military sort of becomes one of the main vectors for advancement there. It, it does. And a lot of people at the time justified turning their allegiance to Napoleon because they saw him as someone who made the careers open to talents, which in the case of the military is absolutely true. If you wanted to be a, an officer in the old regime, you had to be a noble pretty much. It was just you – know, it was a requirement. Uh, but under Napoleon, the way to become an officer was to win battles. And, and this is – in a way, this is why Napoleon was a successful military commander. Now, we know that there are maybe dozens, perhaps hundreds of potential possible revolutions for every single one that's successful. They die in their infancy. You know, uh, they, they never really get going. They are discovered and found out. The plotters are you know, hanged or banished or what have you. Um, what are the necessary preconditions for a successful revolution? This is one of the most interesting points of the book to me. Uh, Britain distinguishes successful revolutions by uh, pointing out that in each of the cases, there is a kind of parallel set of institutions that develop alongside the government. He calls it an illegal government. And by this, he doesn't mean necessarily that it's formally illegal. It's uh, – I might call it – I might call it a shadow government uh, to, to avoid that uh, connotation. There's a shadow government that uh, people transfer their allegiance to rather than be uh, loyal to the old system or the existing system. They are first and foremost a Jacobin or they are first and foremost a member of the Soviet or their allegiance is to – in the case of the American Revolution, their allegiance is to their state, not primarily to the British crown. And in each of these cases, uh, it's, it's not necessarily true that there's anything illegal going on, but there is a transfer of loyalty. And these, these outside institutions attempt not just to command the allegiance of, of their uh, followers, but also increasingly to do the work of governing. And they're there to step in and take over when the time comes. When is that? So like do, the, do there have to be huge numbers of people involved or can a small, very well orchestrated clique of individuals take over and establish a new government? Does, does society have to be in shambles like Russia during the war, um, things falling apart ever, or all around everyone? Not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily the case. Uh, Britain says that there's a key moment in all – of the revolutions where the old order resorts to violence to maintain itself and is defeated in every single one of the cases. Charles the first – I'm sorry, Charles the second rather. Uh, uh, I'm so, no, no, Charles the first, 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 first yeah. succeeds uh, – <laughs> Charles the first does not succeed at violence. Uh, Charles, Charles the first is not able to uh, – not able to uh, you know, maintain himself on the battlefield. Uh, you've got uh, exactly the same you know, failure of violence in the storming of the Bastille. Uh, it was you know, not even a, a terribly strategic military uh, asset. It's uh, you know, a prison. It was not, you know, not 
holding very many people. There were seven of them there. And as the, the phrase among historians goes, arguably, they all deserve to be there. Uh, you know, there were counterfeiters and rapists and, you know, just not not very good people who were in there. You're putting those on par? <laughs> well, look, I mean, arguably, they all deserve to be there. They were not politically persecuted. There had been political there had been political prisoners in the Bastille previously, but not currently. There weren't any weapons. But what happened there was the old order tried and failed to defend itself. And that sent a very powerful signal to the society. That sent a signal that things are capable of changing. And, and that's the case in all of the revolutions. All of them have this kind of signal early uh, attempt to use violence that fails. So is it fair to say then that some revolutions come from above and some come from below? Uh, there's, there's not necessarily a fixed model or a certain number of people you need. There's not a magic critical mass in society that you need to hit. That's correct. That's correct. And it's also the case that you don't see revolutions uh, – you don't see revolutions that are taking place merely on the basis of social class antagonisms. The French Revolution is not just made by the bourgeoisie. Uh, Britain uh, looks at the composition of the Jacobin clubs and he finds that they, the people who are in these clubs come from all walks of life virtually. Uh, not the nobility but uh, just about everyone else in society, you find some of them there. And uh, that's remarkable for, for a couple of reasons. First, because it falsifies claims made by Marxist historians that the revolution was made by the bourgeoisie alone for their interests and they shaped the government to be what they wanted it to be. It's not really the case. And second, it's interesting because it's a parallel with it's in parallel with the other revolutions. You find you find this pattern repeated that people join the revolution not merely based on social class, but based on on ideology. What kinds of constraints do revolutionaries operate under once they are in control of a new government or in, so, even a new society, perhaps? They are in a lot of ways at their most vulnerable when they take over power because immediately whichever revolutionary faction gains political power, they are called upon to do the things that the old government was failing to do. And often that old government was failing for reasons beyond its control. So it is not necessarily the case that the new government can do any better. They're inexperienced. They are facing violence in the streets commonly. They are perhaps one faction among many. They have now got people to their left and to their right who hate them. And so when a, a new government takes over at an initial early stage of a revolution, it's commonly it's a, a moderate, uh, perhaps a reformist government, and it fails. This is a commonality to be seen certainly in three of the four revolutions, not so much in the American Revolution, but uh, certainly in the English Civil War, the French Revolution, and the Russian Revolution. All three of them had that characteristic very, very strongly. You know, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that the American Revolution, it's 13 separate entities basically cooperating together. Uh, maybe there's less there, – there's more of a sense of unity because of the fact that they have to join across governmental bodies. Um, 
But the, my, uh, it, it strikes me that seems like Oliver Cromwell at Putney uh, during the Putney debates. You know, he they have the king basically uh, captive, um, and they're camped with the New Model Army at Putney outside of London, between the king and the Parliament, physically, and Cromwell is having to listen to all these radical levelers talk uh, about getting rid of aristocratic privileges and landholders' privileges, get rid of the House of Lords, get rid of, get rid of the monarch, get rid of property. And uh, he's got to sit there and listen to it all, you know. Uh, he can't it, – it's, it's most of his army perhaps that believes this stuff. So <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, what do you do indeed because uh... – a lot of times these uh, these governments are faced with uh, very strong ideological demands and also conditions on the ground that may make them completely impossible. Expectations become very, very high. The ability to satisfy them is very, very low. Now, one of the things that revolutionaries are constantly on their guard about is the impending counter-revolution. So what kinds of things do you have to do then? Well, I mean, you seem to be getting ahead of yourself because we haven't even talked about the terror yet. <laughs> we haven't talked about what, you know, we haven't talked about the height of the revolutionary fever. Well, what's what's the point of the fever that does seem to strike societies when they're in the midst of revolution? You know, whether it's terrorism against Tories uh, or terrorism by the, the new French regime. Um, the massacres in the Vendée, you know, what, what is it uh, that gets a hold of people that seems to, to make them think all enemies have to be liquidated? Well, this is one of my favorite parts of, of the anatomy of revolution. Uh, Crane Britain does a very good job of ruling out individual character traits as constitutive of terror. It's not that vicious people got in charge. It's not that these people would have you know, maybe been serial killers during you know, time of peace or something. Uh, he has seven factors that he points to as seemingly uh, the precursors of, of terror. And if you listen to them carefully with the example of the French Revolution in mind and also the American Revolution, you can see why the American Revolution was notably short on terror. Uh, so his, his factors are – are as follows. First, there is a habit of violence that develops. People become accustomed to violence as the solution to problems. In the French case, the law courts had been out of commission for, for quite some time before the terror had, had even started. There was popular revolutionary justice. There was popular vigilante justice even for causes unrelated to the revolution. People took the law into their own hands. Violence was something that people were much more accustomed to seeing and to performing. Second, uh, he says that a key factor is pressure from a foreign civil war. Now, the American Revolution was a war of national liberation, but we were not fighting some other foreign power at the same time. Uh, if we were, if uh, say uh, Prussia was on our border and they were invading us, then that might have been a prompt to terror. That might have been a prompt to much more extremism. Uh, third, there is the newness of the machinery of the centralized government. Uh, this is not the case in the American Revolution. The state governments go on more or less as they had. They reorganize themselves somewhat, but they're not radically transformed or abolished. Uh, fourth, there is an acute economic crisis. This is certainly true in the French Revolution where crops had been failing and where the paper money scheme that they got into uh, ended up 
going bust and the paper money was worthless and lots of people were impoverished. Uh, not so much the case in the course of the American Revolution, although we had our own paper money scheme, which I'm sure you'll cover in, in another talk. Uh, fifth, there are class struggles. Now, in the American Revolution, there are some class struggles, but, but not nearly to the politicized and, and uh, identitarian uh, extent that they were in the French Revolution. And certainly race is something and that is not really present yes, in the other revolutions. Race race is present in, in the American Revolution in a way that it is not so much in, in the other revolutions we're talking about, although there have been revolutions with a very significant race component like, like the Haitian Revolution. Uh, uh, there's a sixth variable, which is uh, sort of difficult to describe, but the the revolutionary leaders have undergone what he calls a, an apprenticeship in revolutionary tactics. They've been selected in almost a Darwinian sense for their ability to manipulate an extremist revolutionary group. And uh, you know, this to me, this is Lenin. You know, he, like he just he spent his whole life trying to make revolution. You know, he was he was very. Uh, uh, accustomed to it, not just accustomed to violence, but accustomed to the kind of manipulation of small group dynamics that uh, allows you to ruthlessly turn on a dime and and uh, you know cash in your former friend. Now now makes sense to turn into an enemy, so you do it. Uh, and finally. There is uh, what he calls an element of religious faith, which was shared by the independents, the Jacobins, and the Bolsheviks. This is this gets back to what we were talking about earlier with the the uh, idea that ideology is a kind of secularized religion. It's a, a uh, modern secular version of religious belief. So all of these different factors seem to contribute to the. Uh, the development of a reign of terror in a revolution. And now from what I know about the French Revolution, uh, the Jacobins were terrified that the counter-revolution would always be out there no matter where a monarch was left, right? They, they would had, always be waiting to come back and reinstall feudalism because absolutely. what else do kings do absolutely. but rule had, over serfs, right? They had a great deal of concern about that and their concern was not unfounded, let's face it. Uh, there were kings who were very much hostile to the French Revolution. I mean, they did roll back the and, revolution, right? And, and not only were there kings who were hostile to the revolution, but uh, uncomfortably for Marxists, there were peasants who were hostile to the revolution. And where uh, Marxist historians often struggle to talk about events like the Vendée uh, counter-revolutionary uh, you know, uprising, uh, we don't have to share their discomfort. I'm fine with believing that peasants were devout and loyal to the Catholic Church and when they saw the revolution going after the Catholic Church and trying to nationalize its lands and convert the Catholic Church into a sort of national religion, uh, I'm fine with saying, okay, they were angry about that. They were motivated sufficiently that they would try to strike back. That, that makes sense to me as a motivation. Do the revolutionists ever find themselves in the position of having to become the counter-revolution? Well, there is this uh, sense in which uh, revolutionaries often have to ask when the revolution stops or ask how can we stop the revolution? You know, where is the point at which we're done? And this is a, a question that 
seems to come up with the greatest intensity, I think, in the French Revolution, where uh, we we have a a revolution that first produces a kind of constitutional monarchy and people are very happy that it's done and they think, aha, the French Revolution has just happened and here we are and France has improved. But there are still problems. And one of the problems is what to do with the church, what to do with its extraordinary powers, which are uh, guaranteed by the central government, what to do with the king who is constantly dragging his feet on all sorts of revolutionary questions and turns out is increasingly and finally decisively sympathetic with the counter-revolution. So uh, you know, how, how do you deal with that and how, how can you maintain a constitutional monarchy where your monarch is not a, a willing player? This isn't, this isn't Queen Victoria kind of gradually easing into a constitutional monarchy where you have ceremonial powers and, and very little else. This isn't the case. This is a king who is determined to rule as his ancestors have ruled as something as close to absolutist as he can. Yeah, it's, it seems like uh, maybe Lenin in the Russian Revolution is the hardest case of this, but uh, I could certainly see Cromwell being a counter-revolutionary figure later in his. I mean, he's a he, dictator. He becomes the Lord Protector and, because they don't want to call him the king. But yeah, and you he's know, making war everywhere. Functionally, he's pretty much a king by the end of his life. Yes, he makes his son be the Lord Protector after him. I mean, that's if that's not an inherited, you know, if that's not monarchy, I'm not sure what is, you know. It, it's, it's uh, I mean, we could say that the same thing has happened even in the present day in North Korea, where there was a communist revolution that ended up producing something that looks an awful lot like a monarchy now. It looks an awful lot like an absolute monarchy. Um, now, that, that leads me to my next question here. Do moderates ever really win a revolution? I mean, perhaps the American Revolution is the best case of that here, right? Washington's no king, and he's not exactly the old colonial establishment either, um, though it is definitely, you know, the new Federalists are a collection of elite interests. And Washington's political enemies were certainly quick to make him out to be a king and to complain that he was behaving like one. Uh, the the fact is though they're not tremendously numerous or influential and uh, he also confounds them by actually stepping down from the presidency. You know, probably he could have ruled for as long as he wanted to as president and if he had overstepped constitutional bounds, it's it's an open question how well those bounds would have restrained him. But he was he was fairly scrupulous about uh, not doing that to you know to the best of his understanding and also to relinquishing power, which set a pretty important example. And also, I think it may matter that Washington didn't have children. Hmm. Yeah, nobody to inherit, no inherit one, right? No one to inherit from him, exactly. So then do, do are there any other examples, major examples of moderates winning the revolution and actually forming the regime in the end? You could say that, that uh, certain of the uh, post-Soviet revolutions, the anti-Soviet revolutions uh, in the, the, the late 20th century turned out that way. I mean, you know, Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, you know, these, these went on to produce uh, societies that became more or less Western and liberal and, and you know, that the moderates in a, in a sense did win there. So yeah, it does sometimes happen. But uh, the classic revolutionary phenomenon that that uh, Crane Britain is looking at, this is, this is uh, not something that you should expect. You should not expect the moderates to win, again, because of the situation that they find themselves in, which is uh, 
sort of like being the old regime, but also having enemies on both sides, which does not make things does not make things uh, terribly stable. Yeah, he says power always moves from right to center to left, so it can stay on the right for an awfully long time, like you know, Middle Ages long. But <laughs> once it starts moving to the center, it doesn't last there very long before the left take control of it. Yes, and then presumably yes. you swing back around the other way at some point. Yeah, Tocqueville has this uh, famous uh, aphorism that uh, the most dangerous time for a corrupt society is when it undertakes reforming itself, that uh, this is when things can become very, very unstable. But you are correct to point out that there is in each of these revolutions also a reaction, a reaction that brings back something like the old order or something that uh, does decisively put the uh, end to the revolution. So. Uh, you got uh, you got in the yeah you know, the Russian Revolution. Stalin takes over, and he is he is certainly you know, a communist. And nobody's disputing that. But the idea of uh, the revolution being ongoing is something that he actually is is quite opposed to. And and it's done. We're gonna we're gonna stop here. In the French Revolution, you have the Thermidorian reaction, which is sort of the paradigm of it. And and in the English Civil War, there is the there is the uh, restoration where we're done with Cromwell. We bring back literally the same royal line that we had before Charles II, excuse my earlier difficulty, Charles II uh, returns and is king. And we go back to something not exactly like, but something quite similar to what had been before. Is a permanent revolution possible in your opinion? What would that entail? Do I don't you think? think so. I, I don't think so, and and I think that uh, I think that the anatomy of revolution does a very good job of pointing out why this isn't isn't something that's possible, and that's because the ordinary people who are not usually interested in or involved in politics find that they are tremendously imposed upon by revolutions. Revolutions, even at their best, are inconveniences. And often they are massive inconveniences and often they are deadly and people don't want to have constant disruption in their lives. There is a very strong uh, counterweight that pushes in the direction of stability of some kind. I don't care what it is, but let's just have an ordinary life of some kind. And uh, so revolutions are revolutions are are intermittent periods in in history. They are times of instability before a new equilibrium is to be found. And I know that I know that equilibrium is another one of those metaphors that can't really be applied to to uh, the social sciences with any great exactness. But it does seem clear that these desires by the part of ordinary, not tremendously politically motivated people matter and they do help to, uh, to bring an end to uh, periods of, of revolutionary change. As a libertarian, do you think revolutions are desirable? Political revolutions of the kind we're talking about? Well, I mean that's sort of like asking whether uh, rain is desirable. Would you have been on I... any of these sides that we've talked about today? Would you have been uh, I with certainly the would, of course. Of course, I, I hope I would at least. I hope I would have sided with the American Revolution, and I hope I would have sided at least with the initial stages of the the French Revolution. I I admire Thomas Paine a great deal. You I would have been on his, the block. <laughs> well, you know, he nearly was. 
He nearly was. Thomas Paine, who uh, despite being a very bad speaker of French, got elected to the convention in the French Revolution based on his reputation and and on, on what he had done in, in the American Revolution. He uh, at one point gave a speech in which he recommended that Louis XVI should not be executed. And that turns out uh, not too long afterward to be a, a cardinal sin and uh, he's marked for death but escapes it. Yeah, Con so, Condorcet wanted the king uh, sent to the galleys, right? And uh, well, and Payne wanted him exiled. Payne said we should send him to a little farm in America and make him work for his living. Which is just, you know, it's this, you know, preciously naive kind of <laughs> suggestion. But talk about a revolution, though. But that's a yes, big one. And and less bloodthirsty than what they eventually did with him. I mean, you know, that might have been nicer if it had turned out that way. See, now that sounds like a much more libertarian kind of French Revolution. You know, I, I wish that it might have turned out differently. But you know, the uh, the proponents of liberty are apt to lose out very frequently in these revolutions to those who are less squeamish about using the political means instead. Jason Kuznicki is a historian here at the Cato Institute, editor for Cato Books with a PhD in history from the Johns Hopkins University. His latest book is Technology and the End of Authority, What is Government For? Liberty Chronicles is a project of libertarianism.org. It is produced by Tess Terrible. If you've enjoyed this episode of Liberty Chronicles, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. For more information on Liberty Chronicles, visit libertarianism.org.